We're going to be in Exodus 32, verses 7 through 14. And I'll read it for us. The Lord spoke to Moses, Go quickly, descend, because your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned aside from the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. Look what a stiff-necked people they are. So now leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them and I will make from you a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, for evil he led them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent of this evil against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and told them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven and all this land that I have spoken about, I will give to your descendants and they will inherit it forever. Then the Lord relented over the evil he had said he would do to his people. We read this passage, uh, what do we do with such an angry God? A God who seems he would flip in a heartbeat to destroy his people. Many have taken this passage as either a reason to reject God or to claim that the God of the Old Testament is not even the same as the God of the New Testament. Or they simply embrace an angry God who's, already, who's ready an instant, instant to kill whoever crosses him. Jonathan Edwards, he wrote a famous book called Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. He's one that grabbed onto this angry God idea. And one of the threads of thought in his, in his book is even that God abhors you as a sinner and he's just waiting to drop you into the fires of hell. So what's really happening here? This is, this is a difficult passage to grapple with and I feel it's a key passage as we're kind of traveling through scripture and we're just looking at some key passages. We need to remember that what we're learning, there's theological ideas behind it. We're not just getting simple facts like we read a newspaper. We saw in the gospel of John that there's theology behind these things. God does things intentionally to teach us things. And if we read things just like we read a newspaper, we're going to miss the theology. In Genesis 1.28, this is part of the passage we looked at last week. It said, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every creature that moves on the ground. So they were told to 
to fill the land, be fruitful and multiply. So now we're in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus in Exodus 1.7 says, the Israelites were fruitful, increased greatly and multiplied and became extremely strong so the land was filled with them. What we have here in Exodus is a calling back to what the creation agenda was, to what our creation mission was. And we see that the Israelites are starting to fulfill humanity's role. They're being fruitful. They're multiplying. They're filling the earth. And so God's going to pull them out. He's going to go through this Exodus time and he's going to bring them, hopefully, to be what humanity is meant to be. And so what we see is as the author of Exodus is pulling us back into creation, the Exodus is a recreation account. God shows his power 10 times in bringing plagues to Egypt. Back in Genesis, God showed his power 10 times when he created. In Genesis, it uses the words, and God said. In the story of creation, God divides the waters into two. And out of that, he brings dry land. In the Exodus, we're going to see the Red Sea be divided in two. And there'll be dry land. In the story of creation, God makes a temple. And we are his image in the temple. In the story of the Exodus, the tabernacle is established. And a temple system is created. There's six divine commands given for the building of the tabernacle or the temple. These relate to the six days of creation. And on the seventh day of creation, God rested on the Sabbath. After six commands on how to build the tabernacle, the seventh command is to keep the Sabbath. So what we have here is a new creation. We have a recreation going on. And so Exodus is this, is this creation event that God is working out and he's redeeming. We've, we've seen he did creation and then in Noah, he recreates. And then with Abraham, he says, we're going to do something different here. I'm not going to work with the whole world. I'm going to, we're going to take you, Abraham, and we're going to do something different. And so through Abraham, he begins this work and it culminates in this Exodus. This is a monumental moment in this, in Exodus for now he's bringing about a new, a new creation. And you can imagine the struggle then. God's not angry in just a split second decision. Through all of the Exodus, he's poured his heart out to the people. He's proven himself to the people. He said, look at me, I am your sustainer. I am creating a new world for you. And they're throwing it all away. Falling in the footsteps of Adam and Eve. So what we first get is that this is not a random temper tantrum. And he's not going back on his promises because he did tell Moses, we'll continue with you. What God is saying is, these people are risking the great recreation that I am undertaking. They're risking all that I've promised. They're going back on our agreement. I don't even know as I can call them my people. They're your people, Moses. So what we first see is God's anger here is an action to protect what he is working so hard for. 
There's more to consider in how this perspective of an angry God works out. But I want to go to Moses today. Moses turns things around. God says, Moses, go check up on your people that you brought out of Egypt. Moses says, don't put these people on me. (laughs) You saved these people. You got yourself into this. You put your reputation on the line. So see it through. This is one of those moments that I think of. Sometimes you see in the movie where, or I've even seen in the grocery store where a kid says something back to their parents and it's like, woo, and you're, and you're just watching. You're like, what's going to happen next, right? And so Moses stands up to God. This is perhaps one of the most dramatic passages in the Old Testament because of this, because of how Moses throws it right back in God's face. And this is one of those dramatic uh-oh, moments. And you're just watching Moses and God. Moses and God. Uh, is God going to hit him? What's God going to do? This is where like, if you ever worried about lightning coming down, this is the moment <laughs> that you're thinking Moses is about to get hit by lightning. But what happens is that God changes his mind. God tells Moses, you're right. So we're going to go forward. We see something amazing in Moses that takes place in other scriptures like the Psalms. The psalmist would shake his fist at God. He would say, God, are you even awake up there? Are you going to do something? And he would shift blame towards God. He would get angry with God. He would feel emotion towards God. And he would say, God, why are you not acting? Why are you not doing anything? What we actually see in this, how Moses treats God, how the psalmist treats God is treating God like an actual living being who wants to engage with his people. He's not this upper class ruler hidden away in his grand palace, detached from his people. He's relational and he wants to be connected to his people. What we see in this is that God respects the hatching out of things. Bring your emotion to me. Bring your, bring your anger, your frustration. Let's hash things out. I want to be relational. We're just saying we're a child of God. And he says, come to me like my child. Come to me and, and let's get into the, the nitty gritty of life. Let's be real. Let's get into the struggle. And what we find here with Moses is really the intimacy and ability that God has given us in our place as humanity. It raises the question in my mind, how would you describe God if you were asked? Just think on that for a moment. If, if somebody asked you, how, how do you describe God? In Bible college and seminary, we wrote papers on how you describe God. Well, he's sovereign. He's eternal. He's all-knowing and all-powerful. What you can realize from this is that few people might put down how do you describe God. He's real. He's emotional. He can get frustrated. He can have regret. And he can interact with us in real time. 
These are just as defensible positions from scripture as saying he's also all-powerful and all-knowing and he's sovereign. And so this gives us a glimpse into who God is beyond some of these big terms that we often have in Bible college and in seminary and in our, in our books. This gives us a real honest look at God in this pinnacle verse of, of scripture. And it gives us a glimpse of the intimacy that we have with God and that he has with us. An intimacy that allows us to speak emotionally to each other. To engage at a, at a truly real level of emotion that makes a, a, a true, deep relationship. What's a relationship if you can't be honestly emotional and open with the other person? And so this takes us a few chapters back in our Bible. In Exodus 20, God gives the Ten Commandments. Another question to think about, who knows the top three of the Ten Commandments? Typically, the top three of the Ten Commandments are, don't have any other gods before me. Don't make idols. Don't take my name in vain. I want to look at these three today and bring this back around to the conversation with Moses. First, let's deal with commandments one and two. There's actually two competing thoughts on these commandments if you read these. One Christian thought that you're probably most familiar with is that these are two separate commandments. Don't have any other gods before me and don't make idols. But the other Christian thought is that these two commandments are really one. Don't have any other gods before me and no idols. It's really the same thing. And so therefore, this is a single commandment, is this vein of Christian thought. And God's saying, I'm your God. If you, if you read the, the Ten Commandments, he says, you know, I'm, I'm your God. I'm your God that brought you out of Egypt. So don't have any other gods, including whatever idols you may make. So keep that idea in your mind a little bit here for a moment, that this might just be a single commandment. So now let's go typically to what's the third commandment. In Exodus 20, verse seven, it says, you shall not take the name of your Lord God in vain for the Lord will not hold guiltless anyone who takes his name in vain. Often I think this refer, we picture this as referring to cursing or at least how, how we invoke the name of God. We shouldn't use the name of God lightly. Um, I grew up not even being able allowed to say geez or golly because geez came from Jesus. Golly was a, that was God. You're, you're taking these names in vain. And so even to use the euphemism is, is, to, is to risk violating the third commandment. But this actually gets the third commandment a little wrong. The command is really don't take on my name in vain. Don't bear my name in vain. The idea here is not how we use God's name in our language. The idea here is how we act as God's people. How do we bear his name? 
The idea was symbolized by the high priest of Israel who represented the people before God. The high priest was a single person who represented all of Israel. On the forehead of the high priest, he would wear a medallion. That medallion said, holy, dedicated to Yahweh. This is how intimate Israel was with God. They were set apart for God. They, they knew we're bearing his name. We're representing him. And so the high priest had this medallion to, to represent that. So if you rethink the commandments from the typical three that we have at the beginning, I think it's really two. Worship only me because I am your only God and represent me well. I think these are the first two commandments and they wrap up everything about our relationship with God. What we find in this goes back to what we talked about last Sunday. We're right back in that two-way street, that conduit that God placed us as the meeting place of heaven and earth. We bring God to earth as we bear his name to earth. And we return the praises of creation to God as we worship him only. We are this two-way conduit. We're this two-way street. Worship goes up to God. Bearing his name, his, his name comes into creation through us. So this is this idea of this high place of humanity, this function that we, that we were meant to have. And so what this, what this gives me is it gives me a, a sense of, of worth and confidence knowing what I was made to be. It clarifies how I'm supposed to live as I know what my core purpose is. My core calling is to be this conduit. My core, my core calling is to hold on to God and see God and bring him to the world. And my core calling is to take the world and bring it to God. So what we see in this interaction then, coming back to this interaction between Moses and God, Moses, they're your people. Huh, don't put that on me, God. They're, they're your people. What we see is just how powerfully creation plays out, how powerfully this relationship works as we see that God listens to us. We see that God is open to speaking out of emotion to us. I'm so frustrated, Moses. Get out of my way. It, it's like those, those movies or those bar scenes where it's like, hold me back. Hold me back, you know? And, and so look, th th this is God being emotional, being real. And so he listens to us and he moves with us. God, let's move this way. Put your anger aside. Let's move this way. Okay, Moses, I'll follow you on this one. So he works with us. And what we see is that God gets real and raw with us in the heat of emotions. He wants us to be open to him and tell, us, tell him things, even if they're things that we can often fear. Should I really say this to God? God wants to know. He already technically knows. So open up to him. Tell him. I hope this encourages us. I hope this encourages our place, our it builds on Genesis. 
God places us in his image. He wants us to be in community with him. And then we see how this plays out with Moses and God. We see how boldly this can play out. How clearly this can play out that we can interact with God on this visceral level. 